0: Hello Providence Church, good morning to you, and I hope you've had a wonderful 4th of July holiday and a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Uh, Always on this date, I recall those words in the high priestly prayer of John 17, where Jesus says to his followers, or he prays for his followers, you know, for us to be in the world, but not of the world. And I I think that's so true, that while we're here, as we uh, think about America's 244th birthday, that we want to do all the good we can as citizens, to be good citizens, to do what is good as Christ would define it, and um, just to to promote the well-being of our society. At the same time, when things don't go our way and when we're disappointed and frustrated, uh, to recognize we're ultimately citizens of a heavenly kingdom that jesus is our king and because of those words to be in the world and of the world i do i'm thankful for our country and where we're at in these times we have a short time to be the church and so may we love each other's well uh, each other well and love our church family well our service schedule, I know that uh, many of you uh, have wisely elected to be at home and watching on a screen. That's a good decision. I'm, I'm glad. I hope you feel very comfortable. But I also hope you feel a part of the church family. And uh, just as a, a piece of information, so we're all on the same page, is that we're going to go to uh, our outdoor services. will uh, We'll stay two outside, but instead of 9 and 11, as they are now, starting on July 12th, we're going to go to 9 and 10:30 and we found that we just don't need that full hour in between. So again, starting next weekend, July 12th, we're going to be at 9 and 10:30 a.m. outside with registration for distance and as always we'll be recording uh, the very same service. Uh, thank you church family. Uh, next time you're here you're going to notice a very nice new parking lot in the back. It's beautifully done. And I know uh, some here you're not that excited about a parking lot, but I'm just so proud of this church family that something like this uh, takes a lot of effort, a lot of generosity from the church family, uh, lay leaders, people like Clarence Watkins and C.J. Van Wingerden and Rick Simmer and others who've really used their minds to make this go well. And we always want to put our best foot forward to do things with excellence, to take care of the property. God's entrusted us to steward it well, and so thank you. I hope, um, in a way, it's a blessing to all of you, and and, um, we we give thanks to God for, for what he's doing here at Providence. We also want you to know that we continue to pray as a staff every Monday morning that if you have a prayer request, if there's anything we can do for you, please email Lisa, but we, we see it as our, our really supreme privilege in a way when we work at a church to pray for the people of the church family. So please uh, let us know. We'd love to link arms with you and, and join you in prayer uh, for, those, uh, for, for any hardships or praises that you may have. You know, there have been very few um, difficult days uh, in my 10 months here, but today, in a way, is one of those, is that we say goodbye to a dear brother and sister. Uh, Dale and Kathy Roscom, having been here for 13 years, have decided to move to Arizona. So while it's a sad day for Providence Church, it's a wonderful day for some church around Anthem, Arizona, as they're going to get a wonderful couple I don't know where to begin with Dale and Kathy. Uh, You talk to them for a few minutes and you see what brilliant people they are, but but also that that they're incredibly modest, that they've used uh, their minds that God's given them to serve in wonderful ways. Uh, Outside the church, Kathy is an accountant and Dale has served high up in uh, a a number of banks, including being the first vice president of the Federal Reserve in in Cleveland. Uh, Just a real uh, power couple, if you will. And uh, beyond that, they've served their church very well, that they've both been on staff at various times. Dale is the director of administration, and Kathy has served uh, in the area of finances. Again, a lot of churches go off the rail with finances. Kathy served with such integrity and such excellence. Um, Having someone like her uh, look after the church books was just a real blessing. And Dale served as the chairman of the elder board. Uh, which can be a more uh, difficult job than sometimes we'd like to admit, and he did a commendable job. And I think that if you look in the last 13 years, if, uh, if things have gone well at Providence Church, I think the Roscoms have been there serving uh, because they're that kind of couple. So I've invited Dale and Kathy to just uh, send a final greeting. And uh, as we say, um, it's, it's really not a goodbye, it's a see you later, um, surely uh, a chance here on earth, but of course, because of what Jesus has done that we'll be together forever. So thankful to Dale and
1: Kathy, and uh, here's a word from them. Thank you so much, Austin. You know, it's, it's hard to know what to say in just a couple of, couple of minutes uh, about our time at, at Providence. But I, but I think what I'd like to say is this. We, you know, we, look, we all stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Right? We, don't start, we, don't, we don't build everything on our own. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. So then, for me, a key question is, have I added to the capabilities and the durability of the church by my participation? Have I used the gifts God has given me for something that's going to last beyond me and extend past me." And y- there's an illustration that to me kind of is, is a nice comparison here. It's uh, Think of a young family of four going where to go for vacation. They decide to go to Disney World. And so this family of four arrives in Orlando, not this year, of course, but in, in previous years. Uh, they, they arrive in Orlando and comes the morning and so the mom and dad and the two kids go to the ticket counter and they plunk down a credit card and they buy passes to go into Disney World for the day and so uh, eager for the day they, they walk through the turnstiles and after two or three steps through the turnstiles they stop and they just are wide-eyed taking it all in uh, they can see a castle in the background and a mountain and some characters from comics and other things that they've seen cartoons they've seen and it's just a wonderful thing. They hear music, and they see the sights, and it's an exciting day for them. And after three or four minutes of watching that, they smile at each other, turn around, and walk back to the turnstiles heading for their car. And the dad says, wasn't that grand? And everyone smiles and says, it sure was. And the little boy says, can we do it again next year? That's. That's such a cheap way of going to Disneyland, isn't there? Disney World, they just haven't experienced it. And so my, I really want to leave here with an encouragement. Don't let that type of experience be your, your church experience. Don't come on Sunday mornings and just, you know, be happy for the good music and, 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 and gripped by the uh, adequacy of the preaching and the, and, the, and the excellence of the preaching. Don't let that be you. Be more involved. Be more engaged. See and do as much as you can there's more than Sunday morning uh, to, to the church experience.
2: I just want to say I'm, I'm grateful for um, the the way that I in the time that we've been at Providence I've seen Romans 8.28 lived out um, played out through our relationships with the fellow members of this body um, whether it's friendships that have extended through the entire 13 years or t- short times uh, in a women's Bible study or um, during the times that I was on staff. Uh, just all these relationships, um, I've seen how God has used them to build my, to, for my spiritual growth and for others, and I just am greatly appreciative for that time.
1: So I could do some specific memories, but here's, here are the two big memories that I have from Providence Church. I think back on the different opportunities that uh, I've had to contribute, or Kathy and I've had to contribute to the work of the church, from work days to more office-type environments. But beyond the specific work activity, uh, what I really will remember for a lot longer and are much more impactful are the deep friendships that we've made. Um, our, our key friendships in Cleveland after 14 years are people that we've gotten to know here at church. And some of them must have been 13 and 14 year friendships, some have been less than that. But they're incredibly meaningful to us. The The other memory that I'll cherish always is the great value of men who care deeply about thinking, speaking, and acting rightly. Who read the word of God and apply it to their lives who care that the word of God is applied to their lives rightly, who make difficult choices when they need to in order to hew the shape of their life to the truth of scripture, and not just for themselves, but to encourage others to do the same. And so I would leave that as a final encouragement to you. Um, find men or find women, uh, you know, for the ladies, find women who, uh, who, who really value scriptures, who hold the scriptures high. We've loved being a part of Providence Church. It's been more meaningful to us than you'll likely be able to understand. Um, it's been great for us, and we'll miss you. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: Thank you, Dale and Kathy. Well, church, good morning, and let's begin our time of worship uh, with all those encouragements uh, reflecting as well on the Lord, his work, and and his character. And so we turn now as a call to worship to Psalm 103. And just read verses 6 through 9. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. With that, let's rejoice and let's sing to him. church, as we do, let us uh, look to some truths of our faith that we can recite together. And again, I pray that as we do this, that this is a joyful exercise. This is one that increases our faith, our understanding of our faith, our delight in the Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So this is out of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll look at questions four through seven. I'll read the slide where it says leader, and let's read as a church where it says all. Question number four, what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law, and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Did God create people so wicked and so perverse? No. God created them good and in His own image. That is, in true righteousness and holiness so that they might truly know God, their Creator, Love him with all their heart and live with God in eternal happiness to praise and glorify him. The final question, then where does this corrupt human nature come from? The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. And this is where we rejoice in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has forgiven us by his death and his resurrection as far as the east is from the west and promises to change the nature of all those who believe, giving them not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh, real hearts transformed into his likeness. And he did this for our joy and to glorify God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do not treat us according to our transgressions or what our sins deserve. Instead, Lord, you laid upon him, the Lord Jesus, the sins of us all. Your church, your people have been crucified with Christ. And now, Lord, that he is raised from death to new life, you have given us the same. His righteousness, his holiness, his purity, so that our natures are now different. They are changed forever, and we await a joyful hope when he promises to return. And so, Lord, we we will sing of this hope. We are thankful for this hope that you have given us through your beloved Son with whom you are well pleased. We pray in Jesus' name.
3: Amen.
1: your hearts with me and let's pray. Father God, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. What a delight to be able to enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, for better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, the Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. For you, Lord God, make us glad by your work and the works of your hands. We sing for joy. We come together this morning to proclaim that you are God, that there is none like you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, our creator, redeemer, our savior, and our friend. By the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, holding fast the confession of our hope. For you, God, have promised, and you, God, are faithful. This hope which you have set before us, we have as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. May we then spur one another on to love and good deeds for the glory of your name and for the benefit of the kingdom. Every day, Father, we have the chance to answer the question, do I trust you and your promises? And Father, may the fruit of our lives answer a resounding yes. For scripture says that you have plans for your people, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope. And we agree with the Apostle Paul that we are sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we gather this morning to worship you and to proclaim your holiness and your majesty. Scripture reminds us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that we should let our hearts' be, requests be made known to you. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we bring requests before you this morning. We pray for Michaela Kekedy and her family as they prepare memorial arrangements for her mom who passed this week. We pray especially that you would comfort Michaela and be in the midst of the conversations that they will be having as a family in these next days. We pray for the missions and missionaries that we as a church are involved with and for the folks who volunteer to serve, especially those involved who volunteer to serve people in crisis at Love, Inc. and at Cornerstone. Father, pray for the nursing home residents that are isolated often throughout the year but are, are incredibly isolated now and the ministry there that's been curtailed. But Father, I pray that you'd show yourself to be a caring, loving, comforting God to those folks. Father, we pray for the work in Central Asia, for creative use of technology and materials that would be able to sustain and nurture relationships and the faith of new believers. I pray for our ministry right here in our communities and in my own neighborhood and in our own neighborhoods that we would continue to point people to Jesus, that we would, you give us capability to better connect the truths of Scripture to the situation that we in the world are in right now that more lives would be changed through repentance and faith in Jesus. Father, we do, this weekend, we celebrate our national independence and we recognize the great freedoms that we have here, that that too came from your good hand. And we're grateful for the men and women who have given so much in service to that ideal. Father, we pray for the work work and witness of the church in these days and the days to come. And I pray for a unity among us. Father, I pray also that our desires would be increasingly and only for you, that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within each of us. And, Fathers, we seek to wholly follow you. We ask that the blessing you gave Israel would be granted to us, that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Father, may this be our desire and our confidence today and tomorrow, and for all of our tomorrows, and then forevermore. Amen. Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Luke as we continue on in that narrative. So if you have your Bible or an electronic device, if you can open to Luke chapter 4. I'll be reading from the ESV version this morning, chapter 4, starting in verse 14 through verse 30. And I invite you, if you are able, to stand with me for the reading of God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all.
4: good morning. Uh, My name is Caleb. I'm the uh, pastor of student ministries here at Providence. And uh, before we engage in God's word together, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning thanking you that we are able in Christ to call you Father. Father. As we celebrate the, uh, the liberty and the independence that, that we have in this country, uh, we, we praise you and thank you for the great liberation that, that Jesus accomplished for us in his uh, life, death, and resurrection. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we are desperate to hear from you. Would you humble our hearts? Would you humble our ears and uh, make us willing to receive what you would have to say to us this morning? Father, would you speak through me, would you use me for this time of ministry, Uh, and would you be glorified in our time together? In the name of your Son, the King, we pray. Amen. Well, all the way uh, back in 2018, really just a couple years ago, Marvel Studios released the capstone of a 10-year project, Avengers Infinity War. And if you've never seen the movie, it basically tells a story of some heroes who are trying to save the universe from a really bad dude. And they go through many trials, perform many valiant deeds, but at the end of the movie, they fail. And half of all life in the universe is destroyed. The end. But of course, it's not the end, right? A year later, Avengers Endgame comes out, and that movie doesn't tell a new story, Uh, It it is continuing the seemingly hopeless story of Infinity War to its surprising conclusion. And that's how the two testaments that make up our Bible work. They aren't telling two different stories. Uh, It is uh, one two-part story. Part one, the Old Testament, ends in a pretty dark spot. But the story isn't over. Which is the point that Luke is trying to get across in his gospel. He tells us in Luke 1, verse 2, that he is compiling a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. That is fulfillment language. Luke is trying to show his readers that the story of God in Israel that seemed to have stalled out and failed in the Old Testament is not over. That The story continues and finds its surprising conclusion in the person and work of Jesus. And so when we come to passages like the one we're looking at this morning, we need to ask ourselves, what exactly is Jesus fulfilling and continuing about the story of Israel? And what does that mean for us? So let's find out. Luke tells us that after being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Luke gives us a snapshot of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus would go around and teach in the different synagogues in the area. No, that wasn't an unusual practice, but he was an unusual person. Unlike others, he was empowered by the Spirit, and that caused a report to go throughout the region. His His fame and acclaim grew. And from here on out, in our passage, Luke zooms in on a specific speaking engagement in a town called Nazareth. Now, there is nothing special about Nazareth. It is small. It's isolated. It doesn't even get a shout out in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a lot like Akron. It's it's insignificant compared to a lot of cities in the nation. Uh, People have heard of it, sure, but no one is intentionally going there. That is, until lebron james became famous uh, he put akron on the map because it was his hometown and nazareth was in a similar position with jesus as jesus's fame and acclaim rose nazareth his hometown had the opportunity to ride his coattails and so you can imagine that there was quite the buzz around town whenever jesus came home verse 16 tells us that when he arrived he stuck to his usual custom They went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And like us, uh, they had their usual order of service. They would recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. They would pray. They would spend some time reading from the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And I imagine that in each new element of the service, there would be people in the crowd who would discreetly, or maybe not so discreetly, look over at Jesus and see if he was ever going to do anything. Uh, They wanted to see if this report about him was true. Well, finally, when they got to the part of the service where they would read from the prophets, Jesus stands up. He's given the scroll of Isaiah. He rolls it out looking for a specific passage and then begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this would have got the crowds excited. See, this passage from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, was looking toward God's coming new age, the thing that every first century Jew was longing for. And central to this coming new age is the servant of the Lord, this messianic figure who is God's anointed instrument to redeem and deliver his people. After reading these verses, we're told that he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And every eye is fixed on Jesus as he says these words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing mic drop. Jesus is saying that God's new age is starting right now, that he is the servant of the Lord described in Isaiah. He is the messianic figure that they have been waiting for. And because this Old Testament passage is really central to the point Luke is trying to make, we, we need to slow down and make sure we understand what Jesus has been anointed to do. There are five things listed that the servant of the Lord uh, will do in this text, but, but this is not a job description. Uh, I, Isaiah is painting a picture for us of what the new age that the Messiah is bringing will look like. And all of these things, proclamation of good news, liberty for captives and the oppressed, they all were a part of the year of the Lord's favor. Now to us 21st century Americans, that sounds pretty good. Uh, A year of God's favor is not too shabby of a deal. But the year of the Lord's favor held special significance for a Jew. Uh, The year of the Lord's favor was more commonly known the year of Jubilee. And really to understand its significance, we have to understand the number seven. Uh, Seven is a big deal in scripture because it's associated with the idea of completeness and wholeness. And when we see it showing up in the Bible, it's normally connected to God's complete goodness with the implicit implication, or invitation rather, to to trust in that goodness. And that's how the Jewish calendar worked. Their calendar was made up of cycles of seven. It would start with the Sabbath. Every seventh day, they were to cease working and rest, trusting in God's good provision for them. Then every seventh year, there would be a Sabbath year. And during that year, the Israelites were to give their land a whole year off. Same concept as the Sabbath day. They were to once again cease working, this time for a whole year, trusting in and enjoying God's provision and rest during that time. But then after seven Sabbath years, so 49 years, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And it was the absolute pinnacle of trusting in and experiencing God's good provision. See, not only was the land given the year off, but everything was set to right. Uh, If you had to sell off your land during a famine to provide for your family, your land was returned to you. If you had to sell yourself into indentured servitude, that debt was was canceled. Captives, the oppressed, they were all set free. The Jubilee year was the ultimate depiction of entering into the Lord's rest and experiencing the flourishing that God intended for his creation. But as far as we can tell from historical records, Israel never practiced the year of Jubilee, which I think is indicative of their lack of trust in God and his provision. As soon as they showed up in the promised land, they began to follow and trust other gods. They forfeited God's rest and ended up exiled and oppressed. And so over time, this year of jubilee became this idyllic age that the Jews longed to enter, especially when under oppression like the Romans uh, in the time of Jesus. And with all this background swirling in their heads, Jesus is announcing that it was now time to enter into the year of Jubilee, to experience God's provision and care. And all of this was happening in and through Jesus. Now, it is very likely that Jesus said more to them than simply, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I I mean, that's a a cool thing to say, but it's not going to elicit the response the crowd gives him. Uh, In verse 22, we're told that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, well, isn't this Joseph's son? And there's really two parts to their response. They are marveling at his gracious words. They are blown away by his rhetorical skills, and and yet they discredit him. And if you've seen an as-seen-on-TV infomercial, you've experienced this before. And we are all captivated by the butter knife that can cut through a brick. But very few of us are buying what they're selling. And that's what's happening here. No one is questioning Jesus' rhetorical skills or presentation. They're questioning his conclusion. And they're doing so because they are familiar with him. Notice that they ask one another: Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this little Jesus who used to run around here? But the real problem isn't that they know who he is. The problem is that he does not fit their expectations. Uh, They looked around at the deliverance that was needed, all that would have to happen and be accomplished to bring about the year of the Lord's favor. And then they look at Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. And they think to themselves, you can't make good on that. Jesus gives words to their skepticism in verse 23. He says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb: physician, heal yourself. And the logic behind that uh, proverb makes sense, right? If you claim to be something, be ready to prove it. If you claim to be a doctor, cure yourself. If you claim to be this significant figure, this messiah, then prove it. Let's have a sample of that year of ju- Jubilee you were talking about, Jesus. And this request for evidence seems reasonable, doesn't it? But it's very problematic because there is an underlying desire that's fueling their requests for signs. Here's what Jesus says is actually going on, what they're actually asking for at the second half of verse 23. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. See, they wanted God's blessing to stay local. Then they thought they had a right to it. I mean, why should Capernaum and the other regions be experiencing God's blessing? Jesus, of course, was from Nazareth. So shouldn't the people of Nazareth be the ones to experience God's blessing? And and so they are both unconvinced that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is bringing the Lord to rest, and yet they don't want to risk it, and they don't want him to go anywhere else. And Jesus responds to this in verse 24, saying, "'Truly I say to you, "'no prophet is acceptable,' In his hometown. Jesus is not being poetic or pithy here. He's just stating the sad truth of the matter. In Israel's history, the prophets were ignored and abused. They were not welcome. Hebrews 11 put it, puts it like this that some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute. Afflicted and mistreated. And Jesus is just carrying on that sad tradition. But rather than build on the sorry state of the prophet, he shifts gears and explains what happened when a prophet of God was rejected. Uh, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus gives the crowd a a brief history lesson. He recounts for them a particularly dark stain in Israel's checkered past. Under the rule of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, the nation had full-on rejected God and turned to Baal. And though these two historical examples are very different, they are both saying the same two things. Uh, If you remember the Elijah account, which is recorded in 1 Kings 17, you'll recall that this three-and-a-half-year drought is not an unfortunate meteorological event. Uh, It was God withholding his blessing from a nation that had rejected him. And in the case of Elijah, the presence of leprosy was functioning the same way. Uh, Leprosy, of course, was one of the worst things that could happen to you in that time. It was a a horrible skin condition that required extreme social distancing. Uh, If you had leprosy, you had to stay a minimum of six feet from everyone, including your family, which sounds rather normal to us now, but but they would take it a step further. Uh, If the wind was blowing, you had to stay 120 feet away from everyone. And unlike us, they took social distancing very serious. Uh, It's been recorded of rabbis during Jesus' day throwing stones at lepers to make sure they stayed their proper distance away from everyone else. And this revulsion to leprosy wasn't just for health reasons. There were were religious ones as well. Leprosy was seen as a curse from God because of sin. And if you had leprosy, You weren't allowed to enter into God's presence in the temple. So the fact that there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha was more proof that God was withholding his blessing from the nation. And the point that Jesus is trying to get across is that God's blessing is not their right. If the crowd rejected God, as the nation did under Ahab's leadership, they would pay the heavy price of missing out on God's favor. But there is another common thread between these two historical examples that Jesus is stressing. Notice that the blessing of God goes somewhere. In Elijah's case, it went to the widow in Zarephath of Sidon, and in Elisha's case, to Naaman, the Syrian commander. And the thing that that both of them had in common is that neither of them were Israelites. Not only did Israel miss out on the blessing of God during this time, but God's favor went to those who were far outside of the covenant community. God was, in effect, rescuing the wrong people. Well, this history lesson quickly changed the crowd from skeptical to something else entirely— When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The crowd lost their minds. They got so worked up over what Jesus said that they tried to murder him. So what was what got them so worked up what would cause such an extreme and violent reaction i think they understood what jesus was saying to them the year of jubilee god's favor and blessing had come there was no guarantee that israel was going to experience it see it was not their right John the Baptist puts it like this in Matthew 3, Don't presume that because Abraham is your forefather that you're good. Instead, bear fruit that is consistent with repentance. And that's a hard thing to hear. But what seemed to send them over the edge was the fact that God's blessing was for all people and would go to their enemies. And it did so back in the time of Elijah and Elisha, and it would do so again. And the thought of the Romans receiving God's favor and blessing would have boiled any patriotic Jews' blood. It was so inconceivable that it whipped them into a murderous frenzy. And yet Jesus walks out unscathed and just goes right through the crowd. He walks away and continues to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor elsewhere. And as the the passage closes, you're probably wondering what we should be walking away with. What's Luke trying to get at? What is he trying to communicate to us? Well, Luke wants us to understand that the year of the Lord's favor, God's presence, provision, and rest has finally come in Jesus. And that is truly good news because it's something that we are all longing for. Did you realize that we were made to flourish and that's not prosperity gospel that's just the reality of the situation we were created to share in god's abundant life to rule over creation with him to to trust in and experience uh, his provision and care we however rejected him we want to rule on our own and this rebellion cut us off from god which in turn robbed us of life and flourishing It subjected us to, in all of creation, to futility. And try as we might, there isn't something that we can do to undo this, though we certainly try. And we try to flourish by climbing the corporate ladder, right? By being the envy of the block, by being so successful that we insulate ourselves from any hardship. And yet we are doomed to toil all the days of our life and then die. But then Jesus shows up in our passage and announces that all can enter into the Lord's presence, that that we can experience the flourishing and rest that we were made for through him. That he is inaugurating the ultimate jubilee year where all things are restored. But he did so at great cost. Jesus and his death and resurrection made it possible for us to enter God's presence and experience his rest. And this is what Luke wants us to see. That the longing of the nation of Israel and the longing of all of our hearts to flourish and rest is satisfied in Jesus. And maybe you're looking for that today. Perhaps the aftermath of COVID-19 has stripped you of the security and stability that you thought you had built. Perhaps you are, are being crushed under the weight of trying to control your world and holding everything together. If that's you, then hear Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11:28: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But as we come to him, as we enjoy his rest, there is a danger to avoid. And that is to set ourselves up as gatekeepers of God's blessing. We attempt to restrict the Lord's favor. Sometimes we do so out of entitlement, that this is my blessing, go get your own. But sometimes, like in this passage here, it is more malicious than that. There's almost a vindictive refusal to share God's blessing. We see this in the book of Jonah, right? That Jonah would rather drown than have the message of God's favor go to Israel's enemies. They have hurt me, the logic goes, so now is my chance to get them back. And let's be a little gracious to ourselves. This is how a sinful world works. We are all striving for meaning, for significance, for flourishing. And if you have it, you keep it for yourself. And if you don't have it, you strive for it, even if it takes it means taking it from others so that you can keep it for yourself. No one shares it. But That's not how it works in God's kingdom. Jesus' invitation is open to all, even to your boss who oppresses you at work, even to the Joneses who the world tells you you need to be keeping up with, even to the pro-choice Democrats who go against all of your values, even to the person in your life or in your past that you hate. Jesus offers flourishing to all. But Caleb, you don't know what they're like or what they've done, and you are right. But I know what I've done. I know what we've done. Romans 5 tells us that we were God's Enemies, the ones that God should have hated. Yet instead of withholding his blessing, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve to enter into the year of the Lord's favor, but we do so because of his grace. And we, in turn, need to show that same grace to others. Brothers and sisters, the path to flourishing, the way to rest for all, is through Jesus. May we be a church that calls all to enter into his abundance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you are sympathetic to our plight. That you did not leave us alone to toil and waste away, but that you sent your son to... uh, to make a way for us to enter into your abundant life. Father, we thank you that uh, your great love for us uh, sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we uh, could have our relationship restored uh, with you. Father, would you forgive us as we are often stingy with uh, the good gift and life that you have given us. Father, would you give us eyes to see, See uh, those around us, whether we uh, are close to them or not. Uh, Father, would would you make us good stewards of the message, the good news? Uh, and Father, would you you just empower us to bring glory to your name? It's in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.
3: And I Oh, oh, to him, I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Washed, it washed it By grace we have been saved, and by grace we shall.
0: you, Pastor Caleb and Pastor Ian, and reminded me of an old refrain from another song, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of your name. May we not withhold the blessing of Christ, but realize that, that in him and through him, God has provided for us. He's present with us and he gives us rest. From Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Come to me, all who, are labor and are labor in, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May that be our message. May that be our anchor. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen.
5: Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. It's you.